0: Welcome to Executives in Wealth Management podcast. I'm your host, Tom Spencer, director at Signus Search and Selection, executive search firm across the UK wealth management space. In this podcast, we'll provide our listeners with exclusive insights for the most successful leaders, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and relationship managers in the market. Our guests will share their stories and experiences on topics such as leading a business, managing home and life, influencing skills, or with a view to help you gain valuable tools that you can apply into your own professional life. In episode five, we were joined by the founder of one of the most well-formed, independently owned financial planning businesses in the UK, Colin Lawson of Equilibrium Financial Planning. Throughout this conversation, we discussed what it was like to take the first step and go it alone 27 years ago. His approach to personal development how he's built such a clear and meaningful culture within the business, and looking forward, what he means by the elegant exit. Hi, Colin. Hello, Tom. <laughs> th- thanks for joining us today for the for the podcast. Um, yeah, please, you could uh, you could come along. So, so thanks a lot. Uh, th- you know, it's an it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for the invite. No, thank you. So, so the purpose of what we're trying to do with the uh, executives in wealth management podcast is to focus less on your role as a business owner or or less on the title or or if you're a you know CEO of a large corporate, less on the sort of kind of corporate facade that comes with the big title, but more understand Colin, you know, your journey, what made you who you are, what makes you successful and your key learnings through your own journey in your own career over the last 25 30 years so what we tend to do Colin is to start by really trying to understand the I guess the the environment and the, the factors that made you who you are in your formative years growing up essentially so if you could spend a couple of minutes just kind of giving us a, an overview and a bit of a history as to your childhood makeup etc sure
1: um... Good luck with trying to understand me in 53 minutes. I've been trying to do it in 53 years, and I'm still failing, but (laughs) there we go. Uh, So my background, um, school and I agreed on one thing and one thing only, and that was that I didn't like school and school didn't like me. Okay. And so as a result of that, I tried to go as little as possible. (laughs) I think these days I would have been given the two labels of dyslexic and attention deficit disorder. Um, Back then the labels were slightly differently worded in the fact that you were the lazy child who couldn't focus uh, and that simply wasn't trying hard enough. And so it was an incredibly frustrating school period. Uh, My dad had made the transition from um, working class Manchester to middle class Cheshire, I suppose. And I had two grade A older sisters um, in terms of their studies. And so the expectation bar was raised fairly high. Mm. And I was the one that was constantly disappointing, constantly failing. And um, it kind of got worse as I came to uh, the year before my exams because I got glandular fever. And um, either luckily for me or unluckily for me, my doctor gave me a pass to come and go in and out of school as I pleased. Um, rather than having lots and lots of time off. So strangely enough, I didn't go to the lessons that I didn't like. And um, yeah, I probably abused that somewhat. Let's just... (laughs) uh, (laughs) So I left school um, with uh, one um, O-level, strangely enough, in commerce. And um, uh, left with that kind of drive to prove people wrong, because I spent my whole childhood of people telling me that I wasn't good enough, wasn't trying hard enough. And um, so for sure it influenced everything thereafter. Um, I think looking back in a positive way, actually.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. And has that kind of shaped your, as you say, your mindset and your motivation to kind of prove them wrong, if you like? Absolutely.
1: And um, I'm not sure who I'm still trying to prove wrong, but I think yeah, there's still but... an element of that. I think once it gets ingrained into you by a certain age, there's still that element of rebellious and... Um, I, I, I can't do it your way, so I'm going to do it my way kind of approach.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we'll definitely be coming on to that later. Okay. So, so that was kind of you until, so you left school at, at 16. Is mm-hmm. that right? What yeah. happened? What happened then?
1: Um, well, I tried to follow on the, uh, the family tradition. My granddad spent the first 10 years of his working life in the army. My dad spent the first 10 years in the navy. So I thought the only option left for me was to spend the first 10 in the RAF. Um, it seemed like a simple, easy solution Yeah. and unfortunately got turned down right at the last minute due to having very mild asthma. Let's get it straight. I wasn't planning on flying planes. I just wanted to be working behind a desk, but those were the rules. And so that, that was an, a, a no-go. I remember that being an incredibly scary time of life because I thought there's no way I was not going to get into the you know uh, the services. Everybody gets into the services was was my understanding. And To then go, what on earth am I going to do next? And the idea of just being a labourer, knowing that I had so much more potential was just almost heartbreaking at the time. Uh, Luckily for me, um, under Maggie Thatcher's government at the time, they just launched a new apprentice scheme called the Youth Training Scheme. And the Automobile Association's head office was just down the road from where I lived. And they had a scheme uh, which was absolutely fantastic because... You got to spend three months in each of the different departments. So they had general insurance, they had a shop, uh, they had the breakdown phones, and you got to meet different people, different um, experience, different skill sets of working. Uh, the pay was great twenty seven pounds thirty per week. I'll always remember that number, especially when my dad kept ten pounds back. Um, so that was uh, that was interesting. Uh, and eventually, I got a job um, there dealing with car insurance claims. And started off as a grade one, worked up to a grade three. And I always remember my manager at the time, lovely bloke, but was a bit miserable, a bit overweight. And he was a grade 20 uh, and about 40 odd years old. And I thought, gosh, if I try really hard and I'm really successful, um, I can be like him in the future. Uh, And it wasn't particularly uh, an an appealing option, to be honest.
0: (laughs) No, I can imagine. So, so how did you join the dots between, I trust, you know, the role that you found yourself in, how did you go from there to financial services? Was it always in the back of your mind? I'm getting the impression it definitely wasn't. So how did you join those dots? Correct.
1: Um, it wasn't in, in in the back of the mind at that point in time. Um, next door to where we were working literally out of my window um, was Norwich Union, what's now Aviva's, um, their local office, which was their Stockport office yeah and um i used to watch their consultants coming and going all the time parking in the same spots driving their lovely cars wearing their nice suits um sometimes we would bump into them at a pub at lunchtime people actually used to go to the pub at lunchtime um and then occasionally we'd go back after work and they'd still be in there and i thought this this looks like a great job they drive nice cars wears nice suits and seem to spend a lot of time in the pub (laughs) <laughs> and um, so that seemed to be a much more aspiring image to the one that was currently in front of me. Um, and uh, so applied to, uh, to join them on admin and literally kind of moved from one building to the next building along, um, took a slight pay cut uh, in order to do it. And then luckily, within three months of joining, um, they'd closed the Stockport office. So we're going through a reorgan- reorganisation and I had the choice of moving to Manchester and being one of the, or probably the least experienced member of the team, or going to Stoke, which was going to be a brand new office, um, and therefore being one of the most experienced members of the team. And while Stoke was hugely inconvenient, um, that seemed as a better long-term strategic option. And so I ended up
0: um, working in, uh, in the lovely Stoke-on-Trent. <laughs> right, okay. I didn't know that. And what was that like then? So I guess, what, what was you actually doing stoke-on-trent no. so it was basic
1: um life and pensions administration okay um, was a starting point um but as the goal was always to be a consultant uh, worked really hard um did all the exams and um i took the decision having failed everything at school that i would never fail an exam in my life ever um that's still the run that i've had I I bailed on a few the day before, got to put my hands up to that one, (laughs) Um, but I've still (laughs) never uh, failed an exam uh, since I chose not to. And got onto their trainee um, uh, consultant Mm. programme, which was a great training ground. Absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, They really did put you through the mill. But by the time um, I got through that process, uh, they were actually making redundancies in the consultants, um, not recruiting. So there was um, there, there was no job offer. There was not likely to be any job offer. And so I did the list of, I think, the top 20 or 30 companies in order that I wanted to work for. Um, I was young, so I was happy to work anywhere in the UK and um, probably spent six months just constantly interviewing and eventually got down to about company number 30. Uh, which is called britannia life part of britannia building society yeah. and they were brave enough and stupid enough to offer somebody of my age and lack of experience um, a, a job nice and that's how
0: I, how I, how I became a uh, broker consultant and where where was that then where was that based that was also in stoke oh nice okay
1: um albeit covering um north wales so i was living in Cheshire, office in Stoke, and covering North Wales, which I think I did about 70,000 miles in that uh, that first year.
0: <laughs> okay. But that was, that was quite um systematic way of approaching your career, though. Most people in that sort of formative stages, are, I don't think would would be quite so structured in their approach, to be honest. It sounds like you really knew what you wanted to be, had a plan, and just kind of committed to it. Is that fair?
1: Um, that
0: makes it sound very structured
1: and very unlike me. Okay. Um, I've always had clear goals. I suppose if you start with, um, did I want to spend all the time in the office or be more out of the office? Do I want to spend time with a variety of people or a limited number of people? Then it would be variety um, uh, every day of the week, um, both in terms of the role and, and and the people. So I think it was that that, that was the, uh, the driving force. And, Uh, I seemed reasonably good at it. And so it was back in that stage of having been told that you're not good at something for a long time. You find something that you are good at and people start to give you positive praise, then it just reinforces that drive that, okay, I can do more of this. I want to get better at this. I can keep going. Your tank's getting refilled.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so so we transition into being a, a broken consultant for the first time. And I guess from there, you get the opportunity to look at Many different advice firms of all kind of shapes and sizes with different you know clients, different market segments, et cetera. What would you say was your kind of key observation or learning through that time as a as a broker consultant? Um, my
1: key learning was that I had a, a well my first one I'll actually go back slightly for May. Uh, my manager, my first manager, a lady called um, Viv Holland, later Viv Belcher. Um, was absolutely superb, um, both at her job and at management. And I was 21 years old at the time and knew nothing about how to be a broker consultant apart from the training that I'd been given a lot, which was mainly the sales training, not how would you practically do the job. Yes. I always remember um, first day, they said, right, here's your key metrics you're going to need to make to start off with at least 30 to 40 phone calls per week um, in order to get yourself 15 appointments booked per week. You need to group your appointments in geographical area. This isn't exactly rocket science so far, is it? Um, You need to make at least 15 appointments because you're going to get three or four cancellations. And you need to do more than 10 week in, week out. You need to book your next appointment while you're there to save you having to make so many phone calls in the future. Um, And you need to have five presentations. I will give you that you rotate through. um, By the time you finish that one, you should be getting business from um, this firm. That's all you need to do. Go and do it. There's your list of companies. There's your names. There's your phone numbers. And I was like,
0: that's straightforward.
1: (laughs) That would be too hard, can't it? And it worked exactly as she said it would. Um, And it was really funny because my other consultants in a branch go, You're making us look good. Why are you doing so many appointments? So you you make us look bad. Why are you booking so many appointments? And I'm like, Well, because I want to be successful. And there seemed to be this weird, balance where people were kind of, well, I'll just take out the paycheck and I'll earn a bit of bonus and I'm not that bothered. And I was like, hell no, mm-hmm. um, if it's easy to do and I've got the energy and the time, why the hell wouldn't you? Um, mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was a great learning kit, but that was the first example of learning from somebody who clearly knew better and following instructions um, and working out that, yes, it does work. And I'll, and, and I'll touch on that maybe a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started off in North Wales, um, so you know, pretty small um, advisory firms. I then joked that I got promoted to Stoke, if that's possible, um, and uh, started to see some larger firms, then South Cheshire, and eventually Manchester City Centre. Okay. So over the course of three or four years, was privileged to see firms from all different shapes and, and, and sizes, and obviously different locations as well. And my overriding thought was that if they are doing so well, doing many things so badly, <laughs> then actually how difficult can the job can be? And I, it's probably very harsh. I apologise to anybody that I used to call on. Obviously, you're the exception, not the rule. Um, but, you know, I think that, that was a general theme of it. People and firms were doing incredibly well and it didn't seem to be that difficult. And so uh, my thought process w- was then, how hard can it actually be to do
0: that role? And, and from there, you you just made the decision to do it? I guess I mean it sounds like a sounds like a, a a simple way of of saying you kind of you know you 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 stepped through your time as a broker consultant you looked at different firms and and just came to the conclusion that actually I want to be on that side of the line not this this side of the line or what was it that I guess elicited that change
1: yeah well I think a few things came together all at the same time as they often do and um, we were then working out of Manchester. Um, yeah. The lady Viv that I mentioned earlier that was superb left. I applied for her job. Uh, now, bear in mind, I was 24 and a half, I think, at this point in time. And um, back, back, again, back then, it makes me sound really old, um, but they, the feedback they were a- a- able to give was, you were absolutely the best candidate for the job, but you're too young and nobody will respect you. Uh, now, they wouldn't be able to say that these days, would they? That would be, no. you know, you'd have to come up with some other um, reason instead. Yeah. Uh, But I found that incredibly frustrating. They had kept trying to promote me because um, if you got promoted, you got a much larger salary, you got a better car, but your overall earnings fell. And I thought, this is ridiculous. How how is that promoting me? If I've got confidence in myself that I can hit the numbers and hit target and therefore earn more money, why would I want to have a bigger title and electric windows on my car? No, give me the smaller car, thanks, all the same, and give give me all the extra money. And there were lots of other decisions that were just being made in the company that I just thought were not right. And I um, realised that I wasn't very good at keeping quiet about these things. And that there was a chance that if I stayed in the corporate world too long um, that I suppose that rebellious streak that was built up throughout school um, would uh, come back to haunt me. And, um, and I could end up being uh, forced out rather than walking out. Yeah. So I thought that walking out was a much
0: better option. Yeah. But there's walking out, isn't there? And then there's walking out to go and do something that you've actually never done before, on your own without any sort of safety net—that's quite a distinction.
1: Yes, um, there is, and I was very lucky at the time. Um, so I have to join these two sentences up more carefully than that. Unfortunately, um, my father passed passed away um, a few years beforehand, mm-hmm. and that had given me some drive as well, because there were many things that he would have wanted to have done in his life. I'm sure. And uh, and also the fact that there was the ability to uh, potentially borrow some money to give me a little bit of comfort zone from my mum. And so I was very lucky to be in that situation um, where I could borrow some money because at this stage, I had a family, had a large mortgage. Um, the, the car was a company car, so I needed to buy my own car. And oh, you wow. obviously don't hit the ground running. Really. You had to have that little bit of capability mm-hmm. um, of buffer zone to have allowed it to have happened in the first place. So um, I think if it hadn't have been for that, then I would have been self-employed working for somebody else at stage one. Yes. Um, but with that, it gave me the ability of saying, right, okay, even if I don't sell anything to anybody for six months, I've got enough to get me through. Yeah. And I'm sure I can do that. If I put all of my energy, all of my resources into marketing myself and, and, and networking myself, then how can I not get enough by the end of that, to at least meet the bills on a monthly basis. Mm. And and so that was the uh, the original plan. But from that point of view, yeah, I was very lucky that I had that financial ability uh, to go and do that.
0: Yeah. No, I, I assumed that at that stage in your life, actually, you, you wouldn't have had family and children sort of financial commitments to kind of worry about, if you like. Um, that is a big step then, isn't it? Yeah. So I think I had an 80,000 pound mortgage and a six year old
1: stepdaughter at the time. So,
0: uh... okay. Yeah, fair enough. Fair play. And so we've kind of m- made it to that point where, you know, your business, as we look at it today, is it's kind of started and formed slightly different shape and size at that point. But what would you say would be a kind of, you can put your own time scale on it, but like, it probably takes a couple of years to things to start to build, to start to get that foundations of a business. You know, what, yeah. what could you describe that those first couple of years then? Um, so we talk now about having client personas, that lovely word for what does your
1: perfect client look like? And my original client persona was really simple, um, and it was breathing. <laughs> so I described myself back then, somebody might remember the old adverts, as a martini man, because I would see anybody anywhere about anything. It didn't matter. And when you had all of that time, then you literally, you you will spend forever helping people. And I remember my first ever client, um, still a client today, um, was introduced to me by one of my ex-colleagues at Britannia Life who was selling his flat in Altringham. And he was self-employed, working in Poland and paid in slotties and wanted a mortgage. Now, I don't know if you ever tried to get a mortgage with somebody being paid in slotties and self-employed, but it's not the easiest thing to do. Right. But I had two weeks and spent two weeks doing nothing but that and pounding the streets uh, with Sylvia, his wife, um, going into various different banks, various different building societies, and we got them a mortgage, um, and that's been repaid, you know, ten times over, over over the years. So you are when you start off in that, that beautiful position where if if you're determined to help people enough and you have enough time to help them, then you have that ability to do a better job than anybody else possibly can. And if you can do a better job than anybody else possibly can, you're going to get referrals off the bat. Mm. Um, so the first two years were, were were very simple, but I then woke up and realised that I was working twice the hours for half the pay than I was when I was um, employed. And I thought this isn't quite the business plan that I had in mind. You know, uh, most people would agree that twice the hours for half the pay is 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 not a great idea. Yeah, agreed. And I couldn't really see how it would kind of scale and. Um, so I've often done what I just class as blue sky thinking, you just sit down, bottle of red wine, uh, a pad and go, what do I actually want? You know, what, what's going to really help um, make me happy? Who can I help the most? And I thought, well, I'm in financial services. So surely dealing with people that have got some financial resources, that have got money, are the ideal people to work with. I was seeing almost all my meetings were happening in the evening. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to see people during the day? Wouldn't that be, you know, just just marvellous if, if I could do that and have time at home in the evening with the uh, with the family? And then I was traipsing around, going out to see them at their houses. And, um, you know, I was bored of getting lost. I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could see a location of my choice? And I thought, well, who do I know that I can see during the day at a location of my choice? Um, who's got money, or what does that person look like? What's that persona? I thought, well, I'm either going to be retired or nearly retired. Mm. And by then, I'm 27, so the business when I was 25. And I thought, well, I don't know any rich old people, because that was effectively what I was looking for. <laughs> and um, so I thought, well, okay, how do you find these? Who does? And um, I've often uh, kind of looked out for help wherever I possibly can from somebody who's doing it better and going, let me go and copy you, please. And the amazing thing about this industry is every time you reach out for help to somebody, the answer is invariably yes. I think it doesn't matter who it is. If you can get contact with somebody and say, excuse me, I'd really like your help because um, invariably people will give you an hour of their time. Mm. And uh, there was a guy back in the day called John Cross working for Rothschilds, who was probably the master of seminar selling in the UK. And um, so I heard about John and um, uh, John had shared his process with many people freely, and John said very clearly, this is what you need to do. You buy a database of 10,000 people, um, and this is where you buy the database from. You find yourself a nice venue. Here's a typical venue that you want to go and find. You obviously don't fill in 10,000 envelopes yourself. You get a mailing house to do that for you. Here's an example of some mailing houses um, that will send out the invites for you. Uh, If you send out 10,000 invites, you'll get a 1% response. You'll get 100 bums on seats at your event. Um, And here's roughly a presentation that you might want to go and use, but please do change it and make it your own. Wow. Um, And the problem is, he said, you're going to need to book three back to back, and the best time to do it is straddling the tax year for February, March, and April Mm. uh, your best times. He said, it's going to cost you £10,000 a day, and that was back then, um, and you can't scrimp on it uh, because if you do, it won't work. I said, well, I don't need to do three back-to-back. He said, well, the first one, you're going to lose all your money on it because um, you'll, you might get the people there, but your presentation will be rubbish. Something will go wrong on the day, and nobody will, will become a client. I'm like, great, thanks. He <laughs> said, the, the, the second one, he said, you'll get the people there, you'll be good on the day, but you don't understand the clientele yet, um, and so you won't really get anybody on board from it. Um, you won't be good enough at following up at that level of client. So, great, okay, well, I was us the third one then. So, by the third one, you'll get your £10,000 back within three months, and you'll get £10,000 back a year, every single year thereafter. He said, but you need to do the three. Okay. I'm like, okay, let's go and do the three. And so, sold the car, um, uh, put 20000 quid on credit cards, wow. good old credit card checkbook days, and uh, we booked three seminars back to back, and it worked pretty much um, as he said it would. And um, and that literally transformed the business because it gave us a tap where we wanted to attract more clients, we'd do more seminars. Um, it was it was ridiculous, and it was uh, towards the you know um, late nineties back end of the bull market and uh, well, twenty year bull market as it was then, and um, it was just a fantastic, exciting time period.
0: Hmm, it's quite a few different points that we could explore with that, whether it be blue sky thinking um yeah there's loads but I think I'm interested in just that kind of approach of let's just do it you know most people would you know that have a mortgage that need a car you know but wouldn't wouldn't take that risk you know, it was the perceived risk of of it not working out I guess you know how do you in your own mind just have the just be so kind of clear-minded that it'll work and this is what we need to do and I'm going to do it. I think by that point I'd gained enough um,
1: confidence in myself and I said, you know, I often say that I was blessed with the arrogance of youth because when you're setting up, you know, at 20, 25 to 30, you think you know everything. Um, by the time you get to fourteen, fifty, 50, you realize how little you actually knew. Yes. Um, but luckily that protects you in many ways. <laughs> uh, but I had confidence in myself that if you can put me in front of people, then I could get on with them very well, that I knew enough about the industry now that I could present them with solutions and that that would work out. My problem was getting me in front of the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I couldn't think of another way of doing it. So I think sometimes it comes in the pains and gains. You know, mm. I was working ridiculous hours for not enough money, mm. and so something had to change. And so you either sit there and com- complain about it, or you go, you, you take some massive action. And I think um, I'd also embarked on massive learning um, curves since um, school failure. I was I was just lapping up everything that I possibly could, and um one of the ones I just remembered is is Anthony Robbins um I did their Unleash the Power Within course um in fact I've done it six times now I've done their three uh their uh, Mastery University and uh one of the big things about that they keep going on to is if you're not happy with life um, whatever it is take massive action um and it has to be massive action you have to do something radically different if you want to make radical changes and you know, so I've soaked up learnings from the Life Insurance Association at Sign, Million Dollar Roundtable, Strategic Coach. Um, used to go to New York once a quarter for a day. Um, and that was a Dan, Dan Sullivan. They're, they're now doing the courses in um in the UK. Uh, and again, absolutely superb. So it was all of this positive reinforcement mm. um that you could do it, that you could make it work out, uh, that if you're determined enough, you can do anything, which was so different to school, I suppose,
0: that yeah. it was just like, yeah, why not? It was fun. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? So I think there's a there's a difference between, I mean, most people wouldn't put themselves in that environment, first and foremost. Um, 99% of people don't take the risk you have, haven't surrounded themselves in, in those circles with people with that sort of mindset. But also you have to be coachable as well, don't you? You know, we all know people that go to lots of seminars and lots of events, take loads of notes, even do it properly, you know, come back mm-hmm. do it for a week and then just carry on doing it as they did before. Um, we see it more more often than not. So how do you, in your own mind, iterate? You know, how do you make yourself do things slightly differently and evolve? Because it's hard. Yes, so you know, we spoke earlier about
1: client personas. If I was running a coaching firm, my ideal client would be a slow learner with a big wallet <laughs> as they keep coming back. <laughs> um, so strategic coach is designed to be a three-year course. Right. I got through two years and realized that I hadn't implemented a lot of year one. Exactly. So my plan was then I'm spending three days a quarter between travelling and on this course so that gives me 12 days a year where I can actually put some of this stuff into practice mm. um, and and so I stopped going on the course it also gave me budget to put some of this stuff into practice because it was costing me money to fly to New York and do yeah. the course mm. and I'd done the same with Million Dollar Roundtable I'd been going to Million Dollar Roundtable in the States for about four years again it's a you know, by the time you're there it's a weeks long conference sure it's a great jolly with the lads and ladies Um but it's expensive. And again, looking back through past notes, and there's still stuff here that I haven't done. Yeah. So why do I want to fill the funnel up with more ideas when I've got great ones here that aren't being utilised? Mm. And I thought, well, so now I've found myself with two things. I've got the ideas now. I've got the time back to implement the ideas. And I've got the money back to implement some of them. Brilliant. Because yeah. those are the three things that you generally need, obviously, in a skill set to um, to follow them through. Yeah. But um, it's just been... To me, it's very simplistic, that kind of approach.
0: Mm.
1: Um, but I don't really know why, but hey.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. Just, yeah, there are those that talk about it and those that do it, right? And, you know, just do stuff. Um, okay. And so a lot of what we're talking about at the moment is the development of, I guess, Colin, you know, your own skill set. But once you start uh, once you kind of get through that process of, okay, we found a route to market. We we've we've attracted some clients and we've got a mechanism that creates that throughput. Okay. Mm-hmm. There will come a point where it's a my capacity is restricted and we need to build a business now. And mm-hmm. so how how do you approach, I guess, that kind of leadership element of, of running a business and that sort of transcending of this kind of positive can-do attitude that you have on a personal level to a to the people around you
1: um well I think first of all it's it, it is building the team and
0: um, I've got no idea what
1: course it was on I um, went on years ago It said right do a list of everything that you do um in the business and so it was back in the day you'd open the post you would um, input the, you know, you'd fill out the application form. You'd photocopy the application form. You would, and you just do a list of everything that that you do. It's okay. Which one of those do you dislike the most? Um, and which one of those do you feel you're most incompetent at? And your first hire is one that you don't like doing that you're no good at. And that to me was just really logical. Luckily for me, there are, I'm, I'm not very good at many, many things. So whilst <laughs> I can do, or I dislike doing many things, I suppose, more than anything, I can turn my hands to many things, but I do dislike doing a lot of stuff. I find it boring. Yeah. Um, it drains my tank rather than fills my tank and so um, I had this ability where uh, we could turn on a tap of new clients coming in that would give me the cash flow to go and do it so therefore you can go and afford to go and hire people and, yeah. um, and then you hire a number of people and then you realise that actually the problem is now you've got to manage these people and you've got to hire the replacements and train them and everything else and so then you need to go and find someone to go and do that bit for you um, so then you go and find that person I was very lucky um, to um, uh, know a lady called Debbie Jukes. Um, uh, Debbie um, worked with me at Britannia Life, so I'd known her for quite a while. She was an office manager at um, Aegon in Manchester, and we'd had a few drinks in in, in Manchester one night. And I said, "What's it going to cost uh, for you to come and uh, and work for me?" And um, I said, "You can't afford me. This is what I'm on now." So well, what if I paid you this? And uh, it was probably a bit more Than I should have done after a bottle of wine, um, but um, it was, uh, it was well worth it, and Debbie's been uh with me ever since. Um, uh, Debbie speaks Colin, um, Debbie's brave enough to call out Colin's bullshit from time to time, so you might need to bleep that one out. <laughs> <laughs> I should have warned you about that before we started, um, and um, it's just kind of been my you know, kind of right hand woman, uh, throughout, and we've always had the view and the belief that you recruit people better than you. Um, that allow you to do the bits that you're best at even better. Yeah. And um, and that's how we've kind of built the structure of the business, really. Advisors, the clue is in the title, should spend their time advising. Mm. Um, we know they're not very good at the back office stuff. Yeah. So let's give them even more and more support. We know that advisors can be a risk to the business. We know that they've got egos and personalities and they're harder to control. Mm. So if they're harder to control, I want less of them and, and let, let's give them all the support that we can and that's why um you know our uh, I think we've staffing numbers are probably about 88 and I think we've got eight full-time advisors at the moment so yeah. we're kind of you know 10 ten to one in terms of a structure and that's because I want them to spend um uh, at least um doing nine meetings to, to 11 meetings a week um and if you've got all the support in the world that's perfectly achievable uh, could be tiring but it's achievable
0: yeah and and that's it isn't it um you seem to have a a habit of of doing things differently than kind of the the accepted way. I would say um, equilibrium as a as a business does have a a really unique structure. know anyway, I can say that because I know many many different advice businesses throughout the country and and know uh, businesses of similar size and shape. Um, why why is that, Colin? Obviously, I can see the logic. It makes perfect sense with what you've just said. But you know, if we go back to making that step to go on your own when it was high risk, to seek advice and you know run a, a seminar type model to um uh to creating a structure which is slightly differently than the accepted norm of one advisor, one power planner, one administrator, etc. You know, why is it that you Always do things slightly differently. I suppose is what I'm getting at.
1: Um, that's a it, it, it's a great question. I'm not sure I know exactly how to answer it. Yeah, I think a lot of the things that we've gone through have come through an element of pain and um simplicity. And I think we do try and really keep things simple. It's it, it it's still one of our values mm. and um, and solving problems. So whilst we're very we often go outside occasionally. And go, wow! You're doing that. Come and t- please tell me how you're doing that because because that's something we want to do. Yeah, and and, and we do often reach out like that. Um, but other than that, we try and keep ourselves fairly insular. And I suppose one of the one of the uh, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll talk you through two one one past change and and, and one one um, current one, and then we'll kind of loop back to the middle bit. Okay, um, so. Back in 2007, um, our, we were advisory business. Um, we'd had a, our investment strategy, but um, it was, you know, what I suppose you would label model portfolio these days, yeah. um, but a bit more bespoke than that. And we were quite heavily weighted to um, commercial property funds. And it became obvious, I think the Prudential was one of the first funds to um, uh, put a big bid off a spread on it. And um, we thought other funds will follow suit. So we need to get clients out of property. And that was just a decision that we made across the bat. So we sent out a mail to all clients saying, we think now's the time to get out of property. Um, please um, come into the office and um, fill out a switch form uh, because we're trying to get as many people done as quickly as we can. We thought that was the easiest way of doing it. And we had a queue of people outside of the office uh, mm-hmm. waiting to sign these switch forms. Within two weeks, we'd signed 1,200 switch forms. And it was obvious that with that level of volume, we were going to make some errors. They weren't all all going to be filled in correctly. Um, And it felt like, from the client's point of view, like we were panicking. And I suppose in a way we were. We were going, this is something that's urgent and important. We want to do it for your benefit. There's nothing in it for us at all. Mm. Uh, We're not going to make any more money by doing these switches. Um, And we sat back at the end of that. and went, hang on a minute. We only had to do that because we we're advisory. Is there another yep. option? Yeah, go discretionary. What do you need to go discretionary? Well, we need the right manager. So we went, okay, let's have a look at what the barriers are. They weren't that great. Mm. Um, and I don't know why people thought that they were. There was, you know, you got different capital ad- 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 adequacy requirements at the time. Well, okay, we can work around those. Um, but then it led us on to a horrible wormhole, uh, which is great with hindsight, but it was horrible at the time. Because I thought if we're gonna go discretionary then we're going to need to have money on platforms and do that. So let's move all the money to platforms as soon as physically possible. Okay. Um, if we're going to do that, we need to make sure that we've moved everything to 100% fee. So let's ditch all of the commission. Um, because if you're going to be discretionary, then that seemed to be the way to do it. It mm-hmm. also seemed to be the way to make the transitions to fees and okay. way in advance of, of our RDR. And we were part fee, part commission at that point. Okay. Um, then we thought, well, if we're going to do all of that, we might as well have a new name for the company. Then I thought, well, actually, this new environment isn't suited to one of the equity partners I've got, so I need to boot him out and buy him out, so we'll do that at the same time. And then just as we decided to do all this, Debbie tells me that she's going on maternity leave. Okay. Um, and we were doing all of that at the same time. Mm. Now, with hindsight, that is the most reckless, stupid, irresponsible thing that I have ever in my entire life done. Um, because there was nobody then running the business apart from me. He was working full-time trying to move everybody um, from commission to fees, from advisory to discretionary, um, and it was just um, a year of um, well-organized chaos. Yeah. And it happened to coincide then with the credit crunch. So you're going through all of that at the same time as the uh, as a credit crunch. And clients at the bottom end were paying us half percent fee previously in commission on top. We're now paying us one and a half percent fee. So we're trying to treble the fee. Okay. Um, but it was born out of that one simple thought. This isn't working very well. Mm. This will be better when we get to the side of it. And we nearly ran out of money. Um, we got to the point where uh, I remember doing a presentation to the team and said, I don't care what you're working on this week. Stop it. We're now just going to work on turning the fees around. We need to get the fees in. We had them. It was just collecting them that was the... Uh, yeah, digital. yeah,
0: exactly. But remember,
1: for an 18-month period, looking at the turnover, month on month, going down, 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 the bank account going down, 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 and going, oh, this is scary biscuits. Um, and so it was doing things very differently, but it propelled us to doing things really quickly at the same time. Mm. And we could have done it all slowly. And it would have been more sensible. But we wouldn't have got where we got to as quickly as we did we mm. taken that approach. Yeah, um, yeah. So now I'm a lot more level-headed. I've surrounded myself with a team of people that will now say, no, you need to go a bit slower than that. So yeah, I will yeah. push them. I will, I will be pushing on the accelerator all the time. There'll be the brakes coming the other way, but that reasonable understanding of actually doing it all my own way isn't suitable for a business of this size anymore yeah yeah um um flipping to now because we've just um uh, decided last year that um the seminars had come to their end we're not going to do do them anymore okay um so having done them for 25 years we decided that the efficiency ratio just just wasn't there anymore um mailing people isn't the new modern way approach there's this thing called the internet if people want to learn things these days which wasn't there then and um but we didn't know what we wanted to do yeah but let's ditch it again let's create the time yeah let's create the budget yeah then think out about what we're going to do next Mm. and um we're just at the process of doing that now um which i'll love to come back and talk to you about some other time but we've distilled down what we do into 12 experiences I've broken that down into 18 master classes that we're going to offer to clients and and um, and their guests for free that we're going to do here at the office. There's no sales pitch involved in any of it, but it's everything that you would ever need to know in order to manage your money and your financial life well. Mm. And I spent some time at the weekend, and I've worked out if I do them on the frequency that I want to do them, it's about 256 classes a year. Okay. So give or take if it's through to Friday, it's two per working day. Mm. And came back to the team and said, "You know, like, how are we going to do that?" Said, okay, well, let's we're going to do half of it, You know, but it's that same process, but just done in a different way. That what we're doing isn't working as well as we want it to work. Create time, create money, mm. figure out what will work better. Yeah, uh, so it's the same process, hard. just very different.
0: If I if I link back to use the term sort of blue sky thinking with a pad and a bottle of red wine <laughs> earlier. Um, is your kind of key learning then, as you've kind of gone through these periods of change where you have to think a little bit creatively to find the, the right solution or the right, right way forward? Is, is It, it quite, sounds quite simple, but do you just need to find the capacity and the time to just stop and slow down and have some time to think? Is that kind of key to it?
1: I think is, yes. And I think, um, you know, it's the old energy of spending time working on your business, not in your business, but generally reactive to stuff. And um, I've always taken lots of holidays. And that, again, is part of uh, strategic coach, um, is methodology. And uh, it's where you can do blue sky thinking. You know, you can go and line us a lounge or buy a beach you can read some personal development books. You can think about things that are going on in the business and, um, and still be with your family and kids at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so to me, those are great time periods. And when it was me as a main income producer as well, and the office used to kick me out on a regular basis, me going on a holiday for a fortnight gave everybody a break. Mm-hmm. It was like, great, I can catch up call's going away. Because <laughs> um, I wouldn't call in because that's you, you ask, you're asking them to store up problems for you if you are. yeah uh, you know I wouldn't be on emails. So that's right. Well, I'll just see you in the front. Um, and that still works now to a certain extent as well. There's not going to be new ideas coming in, but then they hate, hate me coming back because they know that that's going to be right. Okay.
0: Next. I've got a dozen ideas that I want to roll out and this is how we're going to do it, et cetera. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, there's kind of two points then that I'd like to, um I'd like to explore before we kind of take a moment to kind of reflect a little bit one is that uh if anyone that's listening does isn't particularly aware of of equilibrium for a business of its size in the advice space mm-hmm. probably has one of the most well-defined cultures of of any business and i you, you know you, you might not agree but I can say with absolute clarity that that is, that is very much the case. And there's a reason why you've won, you know, top employer awards, et cetera. You know, not many businesses win that. We've talked a lot about kind of your approach to leadership and the people that you surrounded yourself with, et cetera. But I'm interested in just the concept of of culture. You know, what is culture to you? What is it to the business? And, you know, why why is it central to what you're doing?
1: Um, For me, it started off before, you know, culture and purpose and values were even kind of a a, a talked about thing. It was about the fact that we spend more time in the four walls of our offices than we do in the four walls of our own houses. We certainly did before working from home. We spend more time with our colleagues than we do with our family and friends. And so my view was always, and, and it's a selfish one from my point of view as well, is that if we're going to be spending all that time in this bricks and mortar building with these other people, I want it to be as fun and rewarding as possible on um, every day to be as enjoyable as it can be. And that doesn't mean that you're not working hard, far from it. Mm, uh, it absolutely. doesn't mean that you're not holding people accountable, far from it. Um, you know, I hold my kids accountable. I'm so sure as hell I'm going to um, hold, 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 hold people here accountable. Mm. And um, it's about having that atmosphere of respect, having each other's backs, having no egos, no brilliant jerks, um, (laughs) making sure that, you know, it doesn't matter how good you are as a salesperson. If you're upsetting people, get out, you know, no toxic people don't need you. Thank you. Yeah. And um, if you do that, you're going to have happier people that are going to stay longer, that are going to give more, and they're going to be more productive. Um, And they're going to be easier to manage because they're going to self-manage themselves. And, um, So, sure, it went from that simple philosophy then into, okay, what values do we want to have? And they're not our values or the values of the team. Uh, We came up with uh, excellence, simplicity, growth, um, and and integrity. Mm. And from that, we're like, okay. Um, One of the courses that we did not long ago uh, was called Scaling Up, uh, another great one for businesses that do want to grow. And um, I said, okay, that's great. What's your purpose? And we're like, ooh, good point. (laughs) <laughs> and um, within half an hour, we've got making people's lives better because that's what we do. And that's making people's lives better, are the, pe- the the um, suppliers that we deal with, um, the staff, the clients. And if you can then focus every single decision of, does this make people's lives better? Does it fit in with these four values, yes or no? Then it helps channel your thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been to occasions where you've gone, oh, there's a decision where I can make more money. And you go, ah, but does it fit in with the purpose and does it fit in with the values? no. Damn it, hate it when that happens. <laughs> but it, it gives you stars to steer by. It actually allows you to genuinely say to everyone, this is how we run this business. Yeah. But that wasn't enough. And so from that, we said, well, okay, how do we make people's lives better? And then we're like, okay, for clients, we help them live the life that they want to live. We help them look after those that they love. And we help them leave a powerful legacy. And they we went, damn it. We had that for about a year. And then we're like, yeah, but how do we do that? And that's where these 12 experiences have come out because we realise we haven't captured everything that we do for clients. Mm. So you say these are the values that we do. This is the purpose of the business. This is how we do that for you, Mr. Client. And this is how we're going to demonstrate and articulate that for you through these 12 experiences that we're going to take you through and guide you you through. So you go from that simple cultural idea to something then that people will um, back and they'll believe in um, and that makes sense and makes everybody proud um, to come into the building and pr- proud pride to wear the badge
0: mm. now that's
1: the that that's part of it and um it won't work out all the time it doesn't mean that we're installing slides and you know bribing people to be here um far from it if if we're doing that stuff we're doing it through efficiency so everybody gets free breakfast why have you ever been to the office and got on wheatabix wars you open the cupboard there's these 10 packets of wheatabix with everyone's names on them damn it I've only got one left in mine. I'm going to steal one from Toby's. <laughs> and the cupboard is horrible and full of little bits of Weetabix everywhere because there's so many packets of Weetabix. It just doesn't make any sense. You're giving people extra stress uh, and extra hassle for the cost of doing it, for providing fruit and healthy food. Why not? Yeah. Um, so you can, you can overlap those two things and have efficiency and culture um, work hand in hand mm. as a win-win you've just got to make sure that you're not doing it for the wrong reasons mm. now if you do it for the wrong reasons you'll be seen through really quickly mm. um, but you can overlap the
0: two without any doubt whatsoever yeah Retabix wars that's going to have to be a it's got to be a badge somewhere that is um <laughs> <laughs> okay all right so i think it's kind of a nice point to i guess kind of reflect but in a sense of a reflection i kind of want to Talk about your your own. So you you built this business, this entity over the last twenty seven years. You know, from taking a risk as a decision as a twenty five year old to go and do something a little bit differently to you know a really well formed business. Now I know a little bit about what you want to do, but many of our listeners won't. And again, it links back to that point around not going down the necessarily expected route of someone in your position and thinking a little bit differently. But can can we talk about what you see as the next stage of, whether it's your journey, Colin, or, or equilibriums, if you will? Um, sure. Yeah. Um,
1: we've created a problem for ourselves. And uh, a number of years ago, we looked at potentially selling a business, appointed uh, a firm. Um, we had a list of, of, of potential acquirers that we could talk to in various different categories. And Debbie and I looked at that list and I looked at each other and thought, oh dear. And the idea was because we'd won clients um, from many of those firms and we felt, rightly or wrongly, um, that we did things an awful lot better than they did. That if we were taken over by them, that the name equilibrium would cease to exist, that a number of our staff um, would be made redundant, that clients would be forced um, and that's what they're being done. That's what's happening. They're being forced to go somewhere that they didn't choose um, because the shareholders want to cash in and take a check out. And I believe that a business sale of any nature done badly is like a redundancy um, or a bereavement. You give up what you love in exchange for a big check. Yeah. Um that doesn't necessarily make you happy. And you know, there's a whole thing about financial well-being and purpose and everything else that we can go into, but that's a whole other topic for another day. And um, so we left there and realized that we couldn't sell. And it left us with a big problem. And um, the problem was then what on earth do we do um, next? And we decided that we would scale up um, to the extent that if we got big enough, then it would be more likely to be a change of shareholder rather than a change of company. That The brand, the culture, everything that we, we were built would continue. And it's important now that we can articulate that to staff because it's a fear of them that they might get sold back to somewhere um, where they don't want to be or, or be made redundant. It's a fear for clients. And so the approach that we've taken um, very briefly um, is that we would um, prefer um, instead to sell a portion of our business to our clients and sell the majority. And I've spoken mm-hmm. to clients about it, I've spoken to flits and accountants, and there are no barriers. Um, it has to be a private um, uh, offering, effectively. Mm. And if you valued the business at 3% of assets under management, let's say I want to keep a third, in order to keep skin in the game and prove to clients that I'm not um, that i still going to be around in the future, yeah. Um, then give or take it, it's two percent of their portfolios. So if you're asking people, should would you invest two percent of your liquid assets into a firm that you know very well? Um, then uh, the vast majority of people that we spoken to said we would love to. We would pay that just not to find another advisor. <laughs> yeah. Um, it hadn't been done before. I uh, originally came up with the idea um I, I i won't share the name um uh, but i've found out that um somebody that i used to know many many years ago so recently um he's done it with his clients um and again it's gone down and in, uh, incredibly well um he's done it because he wants to expand and make a- acquisitions um we just want to do it so that we don't have to sell and that i can at some point take money off the table um reduce my hours um but still be involved in the uh in the business long term
0: mm. no, it's there's a lot to that colin and Says a lot about, I think, why you've been able to create a culture that is centered around the client. You know, it's very clearly that doing it for the right reasons. I'm pretty certain that if that was a financial decision, then that wouldn't be the route that you'd be looking to go down. So, I think that's, I think that's something. I think there's a lot to that. Um, Unless there's anything else that you particularly want to share, I think there's kind of a nice point to transition towards the the fun, (laughs) quick fire round. It's a bit cheesy. Um, are you happy yeah should we go for it absolutely okay so the purpose of this Colin if you haven't listened to one of our podcasts I'm sure you have um, is is to just immediately say what comes to mind don't think about it too much okay and it's five questions so Colin in one word how would your partner or someone you love how would they describe you exuberant exuberant okay Who is your idol?
1: Well, that's a tough one. I'm going to have to pass on that one.
0: I have many idols and none one individual, so... (laughs) Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, What are you currently reading?
1: Um, I'm probably in in about three books at once at the moment, Um, but The 100-Year-Old Life, which is just about um, how life and career is going to change as we all get older. Okay. Or live longer, I should say. Sorry, not get older.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll have a look into it. Um, what's your pet hate?
1: Ooh, um, I'll give you two for that one to make up for one earlier. Um, when my girlfriend's alarm goes off more than once and it's set <laughs> earlier so than That's one. And uh, people eating with their mouth open.
0: Okay, fair enough. Uh, okay, and finally then, so Signia's getting the bill. You can go anywhere in the world, and I know you're well-travelled, for as long as you like, on your own or with your family, where do you go?
1: On a fantastic um,
0: boat in Antarctica. Okay. Why
1: Antarctica? Uh, Because it looks
0: amazing and I would like to go while it's still there. (laughs) Well, yeah, sure enough. Sure enough. Okay, well, I think that kind of wraps us up then, Colin. I am a Very, very grateful that you took the time, sir, to have this conversation. And yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. It was fun. I enjoyed it.